Well, as he prayed, we have been apart for a couple of weeks due to the holidays. So tonight we pick up where we left off in the book of Jonah. And we will be in chapter 3 tonight talking about a new beginning. Chapter 3. Everybody got it? Getting there? Ready? Okay. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. I guess this time you would obey, wouldn't you? <laughs> now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. Folks, right here is the greatest miracle in the book of Jonah, okay? The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. In 1973, Gary uh, Kildall wrote the first popular operating system for personal computers and it was referred to simply by the letters CP backslash M. Now, according to Philip Fiorini, IBM approached Kindle in 1980 about developing the operating system for IBM's PCs. But Kendall snubbed IBM officials at a critical meeting uh, according to another author, Paul Carroll. The day IBM came calling, he chose to be out flying in his new airplane. Well, the frustrated IBM executives went a different direction. They turned to a young man who had been making some headlines by the name of Bill Gates founder of a small software company at the time called Microsoft, and his operating system back then was what? Do you remember? DOS. MS-DOS. Yep. 
14 years later, now not now, this was even before we got into um, 2000 and beyond. 14 years later, Bill Gates was worth more than $8 billion. Now I think it's something like $18 billion, isn't it? You know what? I would imagine if Gary Kildall were still alive today, you reckon that he would like a second chance? <laughs> I think he would have done things differently if he could have seen what was going to happen. But you know what? He lost his chance forever and has since died. Now folks, as we look at chapter 3 in the book of Jonah, Jonah gets a second chance. Jonah is able to have a new beginning. The Bible says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. What is that? What kind of statement is that? That's a statement of mercy, isn't it? Statement of grace. Have you ever done something, maybe somebody here tonight played in a high school game of some sort and and you were expected to carry the team that night in a very important game. And as it turned out, you had, you had your worst game of the whole season. And your team lost. You, want, you would love to have a do-over. Or maybe you were called on to give your company's sales pitch to new clients. And you had researched it and planned it out. And I mean, everything, you just knew the presentation, the way you practiced it was, was going to sizzle. It was going to go great. And yet the presentation fell flat on its face. What do you want? You want to do over, don't you? Maybe you have been so excited about a Sunday school lesson you prepared all week and you're like, man, this thing will preach. And you took your notes and you did your studying and you were ready. I mean, you were loaded for bear. And you went into the class and it couldn't have fallen more flat. Anybody ever had experiences anything like that? Been there and done that. Been there and done that? You ever played anything on the instrument? Man, I wish I could have a do-over on that. We've all kind of had experiences like that, right? Well, tonight we get to see how Jonah did in fact get a do-over. He got a second chance. Maybe somebody here tonight needs a second chance. You need a new beginning. Something God's called you to do in your life. And you haven't. And you need a fresh start. Well, if that's you, I hope this message ministers to you. What we're going to see tonight is that the grace of God often allows do-overs. Now, don't assume in every situation God's going to give you a do-over. But when He does, it's a gift of grace. Well, the first thing I want you to see tonight, the grace of God is overwhelming. Verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Just think about that phrase. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now folks, this does not mean that God ever views sin lightly. Think with me a moment about the woman caught in adultery. 
when Jesus said, go and sin no more, she got a new beginning. But what did Jesus tell her? Don't sin anymore. He wasn't light on sin. He told her to repent and not sin anymore, but He gave her a new beginning. So God's not light on sin, but He is a God of grace. That's the kind of God that we serve. You know, I think of King David as he wrote Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Most people are aware of Psalm 51, his great psalm of confession. After he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, and Nathan tells in that parable about the rich man who took one little lamb and the poor man, that's all he had. And David says, that man ought to die. And Nathan points, I can imagine Nathan having a long bony finger and pointing at David and saying, you are the man. And Psalm 51 is his psalm of confession of his sin. Well, Psalm 32, though, if you go back and read Psalm 32 alongside of Psalm 51, Psalm 32 is the account of David's mindset before he received God's forgiveness. And what was his mindset there? He said, my bones had almost wasted away within me. That's how sin had affected him, even physically. It was more than he could bear. But then he goes on to say in that psalm, but blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. David got a second chance. Again, what I'm saying is God is a God of a second chance. According to Psalm 103, David points out that God doesn't treat us as our <laughs> sins deserve. David said he takes our sin and casts it as far as the east is from the west. Missionary Bertha Smith used to say he, he takes our sins and throws them into a faraway ocean and puts up a no fishing sign. <laughs> well, Jonah has been disciplined and he's responded in humility and confession. He's got a new lease on life. He's ready to experience his new beginning. You know who I think of? I think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. Does anybody remember what Paul says in Philippians 3? He starts out that chapter by talking about his resume, if he wanted to boast in a resume. You remember what all he said? About how he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised uh, on the eighth day, and he goes on to talk about how he was blameless. And how's he in that section? All the things that were gained to me, I now count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And then beginning in verse 12, he says, I'll tell you what I do now. Forgetting the things that are behind me and reaching forward to the things that are ahead. I want to lay hold of that for which God has laid hold of me. It's very graphic language. I want to seize that for which God has seized me. Paul got a new beginning. George H. Morrison once said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Think of that, how true that is. A series of new beginnings. 
I think of all the many times in Scripture we see this theme of second chances and new beginnings. There was Abraham when God called Abraham while he was still just known as Abram. God called him to leave Ur of the Chaldeans and go to a new land. And, you know, he, he got up, he obeyed, he went as far as Haran, but then he stopped. He didn't carry through all the way. And then after his father died, after Terah died, God appeared to Abram again and told him to get up and go to the land that he had first called him to. And Abraham obeyed. And in that new land, he enjoyed the blessings of God. But then what did he do after that? He fled down to Egypt, right? Down in Egypt. <clears throat> We know what happened to him there. And how he, how Pharaoh, you know, how he lied about Sarah. And God told him to get back where he was supposed to be. He went back to the promised land. Another new beginning. Jacob lied to his father and fled. And yet Jacob wrestled with God and his name was changed. He went from Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver to Jacob, or Israel that is, one who is a prince with God. Simon Peter, what Simon Peter do? Denied the Lord how many times? Three times, yet he repented. And Jesus wanted to make sure that Peter was in the group when he told the women at the empty tomb, go tell my disciples and Peter that I will meet them in Galilee. In other words, Peter, I'm not done with you yet. You're going to have a new beginning. Now again, these cases are not to be used as excuses to sin, but merely as examples that even the saints of God in the Bible got a second chance when they repented. You know, Satan's the accuser of the brethren. And he would like nothing more than to convince you and me that because of all of our past shortcomings, we have no future at all to ever serve the Lord again. That's what Satan would like us to believe. So, we see the grace of God is overwhelming to Jonah. Jonah gets a second chance. But I want you to notice something. The command of God is still there. The call of God is irrevocable. What do we find in verse 2? Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. God gives Jonah a second chance, but what God asked him to do is still on the table. You go back to the beginning of chapter 1, and this is what God had told Jonah to do back then. That command is still on the table. It's not changed. Jonah is a changed man now, but he's still got to obey God and do what God has called him to do. God will give the repentant a second chance, but that doesn't mean the repentant can set aside the commands of God. We've still got to deal with obedience, the very thing that we might have failed in the first time around. Folks, we shouldn't view God's commands as some type of cafeteria line where we can go through the line and pick what we want and bypass what we don't like. Has God maybe been 
tapping you on the shoulder, so to speak, for months or maybe even years to do something. How long have you put it off? Maybe it's somebody that you need to go and get right with. Maybe years and years ago, God called you into the ministry and you've been fighting with that. Some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my life were men that they knew God had called them to preach. And yet they disobeyed God and they ran from that call. I've, I've spoken to a couple of these people personally. They're miserable and they wish they could go back and do things over again. Jonah still had to go to Nineveh. God called it what kind of city? Great city. Archaeologists tell us it's a well-deserved description. It was great in history, having been founded in ancient times by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod. You can read about that in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. It was great in size. The circumference of the city and its suburbs was 60 miles. And from the Lord's statement in Jonah 4.11, we could infer that there were probably over 600,000 people living there. One wall of the city had a circumference of 8 miles and boasted of 1,500 towers. The city was great in influence being one of the leading cities of the powerful Assyrian Empire. It was built near the Tigris River and had the Kosher River running through it. The army of Assyria was great. The army was feared everywhere. Nineveh was also, unfortunately, great in sin. And they were known for their sin and for their violence and how harsh they were to their enemies. They would impale live victims on sharp poles, leaving them to roast to death. They'd stand the poles up and leaving them to basically barbecue in the hot sun until all the blood ran out of their bodies. They beheaded people by the thousands and stacked their skulls up in piles by city gates. They even skinned people alive. They respected neither age nor sex, and they followed a policy of killing babies and young children so they wouldn't have to take care of them. Now, Jonah probably had some time to travel from his own land, or where the great fish or the whale had spit him out on dry ground, to get from there to Nineveh, and during that trip, he had a lot of time to meditate on all these things, but he also had a lot of time to meditate on what the Lord had taught him through the discipline that he endured. But folks, there's always one thing you can count on. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God can't keep you and the power, power of God can't use you. Amen. Okay? The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God can't keep you and the power of God can't use you. You know, in writing something similar to that in 2 Corinthians, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, and then again in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul asked the question, 
And who is sufficient for these things? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. No one is sufficient for this. Paul goes on to clarify, God is our sufficiency. Now, the Bible says here that Nineveh was a three days journey. It probably means that it took Jonah three days to go through all of Nineveh and its suburbs. According to Genesis chapter 10, four cities, four separate cities would have been included in the metroplex region that was associated with Nineveh. In fact, all of the outlying villages around Nineveh would have been considered part of Nineveh. Now, notice with me that all we have of Jonah's ministry recorded for us is eight words, an eight-word sermon. In the Hebrew text, it's only five words. That's all. Now, we would assume that Jonah spent a lot more time telling them about the true and the living God and giving them some background. He probably told them about God's wonders in behalf of Israel and maybe even about his own history of being swallowed by the, by the whale or the great fish. We don't know what all Jonah might have told them. All we have recorded here is five words in the Hebrew. Most English translations, again, are eight words. And yet, look at the effect of these words. God used Jonah's message tremendously. After all, it wasn't Jonah's message. Whose message was it? It was God's message. And as Jonah preached, the power of God fell on the Ninevites. You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of Romans chapter 10. Write down Romans 10, 13 to 15. Paul says, Therefore, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. God used Jonah's message. Write down also, go home tonight and read Ezekiel 37. Famous chapter in the book of Ezekiel. Anybody know what it's about? The valley of what? Dry bones. God used a man of God who took the Word of God and preached the Word of God to the people of God. What happened? A revival broke out. God uses His Word. Sunday school teachers, as you stand to, to teach the lesson, it's not your words. It's God's Word. As I stand to preach or teach, it's not my Word. It's God's Word. And what does Isaiah 55 say? God's Word will never return to Him void but will accomplish that which God purposes. God uses His Word. And that's what He did here. 
Third thing I want you to see, the love of God is super abounding. God loved the Ninevites. First of all, God, God could have destroyed them without ever sending His prophet to them. And guess what, folks? Had God done that, God would have been absolutely, perfectly just in doing so. God would have been just in destroying them. You and I need to understand this. If God saves no one, hear me, if God were to save no one, He is being perfectly just. Why? Because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And so if all of us got judgment, we would all just simply be getting what we deserve if no one was saved. And God's justice and goodness in condemning everybody would not even be in question. If even one person is saved, what is that? It's grace. Think about you being saved. Think back to when you were saved. The circumstances God used, the people God used. Folks, it's the grace of God. It's not your doing. It's not your doing. It's not anybody's doing but God. We're not, as, as John tells us in John 1.13, we're not saved by human will or a father's will, a parent's will, or human will. We're saved by the will of God. Look at what God does here. He sends His servant to preach the Word of God. That's grace in and of itself too. That he is sending them a missionary. That's grace. You know, in addition to that, God could have destroyed them with no delay once Jonah finished that eight-word sermon. He could have delivered a sermon of judgment and the next thing, lightning bolts fall. Boom! And God destroys them. And yet, what did God tell them he was giving them? 40 days. Showing that God is long-suffering and patient. People say, with the shape the world's in today, why in the world has Jesus not come back yet? Why has God not ended this world? Well, the Bible supplies that answer. 2 Peter 3. God's long-suffering and patient. Not willing that any should perish. There are people who are yet to believe and be saved. God is long-suffering and patient. Why? Because He has a great love for the lost. In Matthew 9, Jesus looked at the crowds coming out to meet Him. And He was moved with compassion for them because He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Think of it also. What a tremendous testimony it would be for the Ninevites to be saved. Sometimes we conclude that people have gone too far. They can't be reached. They've sinned too much. 
they've gone too far. Well, the Ninevites are a testimony against that, right? Their sin was great. And yet God sent them a missionary who preached the Word of God to them. And they repented and God saved them. God's love for the Ninevites compels him to send Jonah. Jonah's attitude ought to be that that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul tells Christians in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of Christ ought to compel us to go to the lost. Now, let me give a warning here about the love of God. The love of God does not negate the requirement of repentance. The Ninevites were still called upon to repent. But again, what a marvelous testimony of repentance they were. Think again about what's said here in verse 5 and following. The Ninevites believed God a fast was proclaimed, all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Listen to what the king says down in verse 7. Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. God's grace is wonderful, but you still got to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord. Well, what we see lastly here is the wrath of God is avoidable. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. Folks, there are some principles and promises in Scripture that we will not get around. Some examples of those would be what, it's, what it says in the book of Exodus, the soul that sins shall die. Ezekiel 18 says the same. Another principle, he that believeth not stands condemned already. That's John 3, 17 and following. Another principle, ask and it will be given to you. The greatest promise of all, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God is sovereign and yet He's laid down principles and promises in His Word that if we change and come to Him, judgment can be avoided. Remember what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost? He got done preaching. What was the question the people asked him after his sermon on Pentecost? What shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? And what did he say? Repent and believe and be baptized in the name of the Lord. And what was the promise? If you'll do that, Peter said, you will experience times of refreshing from the Lord. <clears throat> Folks, all through history there have been times of people turning to the Lord and God saves them. <clears throat> I think of that time 
Josiah's reform. Remember, remember what happened in Josiah's reform in the Old Testament. Josiah discovered copies of the Old Testament. Discovered them in the temple. Apparently, to show you how far they'd gotten away from the Word of God, the priests weren't even sure what they were. That's how far they had gotten away from it. When it was discovered what it was, Josiah called for the reading of the law and he began removing all unholy things and idols that the law condemned. And what happened? Revival broke out. I think also in modern times of the prayer revival of 1857. You need to hear this one because it concerns a revival that took place in America that would almost remind you of Jonah chapter 3. It's referred to as the Forgotten Great Awakening, the revival of 1857 and 1858. Now surprisingly, little is known about this spiritual awakening in contrast to the awakenings of 1734, 1797, and 1830. Leading up to this revival was the great bank panic of 1857 in America. But even more important than the crisis was the fervent and ongoing prayers of godly Christians concerning the moral apathy and the spiritual decline of the nation. The revival is credited to the prayers of God's people. Beginning in New York City, there was the rise of a layman's prayer movement that spread across the country. Business people would start meeting for prayer, skipping lunch and using their lunch hour to pray. Start out with small numbers, but then it grew and grew and grew and grew until multitudes were involved. And then it jumped from state to state until it had touched just about every part of the United States and Canada and even the Caribbean islands. Now, here are some observations about this awakening. First, it was not the result of the work of a famous preacher or evangelist. Second, it was unusual in that it involved the leadership of laymen to a greater degree than previous awakenings. Third, this awakening was unusually free from emotionalism or uncontrolled outbursts that had been associated with some revivals. Fourth, there was no recorded evidence of what some people refer to as the sign gifts, like tongues and healing. Uh, rather, the gifts that accompanied this awakening were those of church planners, preacher, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. Finally, there seemed to be an unusual unity and cooperation among genuine believers who were within the bounds of Orthodox Protestant theology. One testimony of this awakening says, never before has the salvation of God been so mightily revealed in our land. Never, we believe, has the truth made such rapid advances among 
the people, never have the skies poured down righteousness upon us as during the last few months the highway of holiness has never before been trodden by so large a host of his ransomed ones at any period of the world's history in this visitation of mercy our state has largely participated. Folks, by the time the awakening abated, conservative estimates record over one million new converts. Out of this awakening came the ministry of D.L. Moody in Chicago as well as that of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission. Out of this revival also came the YMCA and the Sunday School Movement. Anna Warner, stirred by this awakening, penned the words to the familiar song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And the invitation hymn, Just As I Am, Without One Plea, became familiar to God's people during this awakening. The words to the familiar hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus, were written. Uh, during this revival by George Dufield upon the death of a preacher friend whose dying words were Tell the men to stand up for Jesus. William Bradbury composed the simple melody that he leadeth me, O blessed thought. A 16-year-old boy converted during the revival described his conversion in the hymn. He composed, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resigned. An itinerant evangelist preaching during this time wrote the words, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Fanny Crosby wrote many of her beloved hymns during this time, Near the Cross, Blessed Assurance. Philip Bliss composed, Whosoever Will May Come, and Man of Sorrows, out of a heart stirred by this awakening. Why do I bring that up? Because that awakening and how it spread all through America and Canada and the Caribbean islands, it was such a massive turning to God. What's it remind you of? Reminds you of what happened right here in John chapter 3. Folks, when people turn to God, great things can happen. Great things can happen. Now, we can assume that they were very sincere. What makes us assume that the Ninevites were very sincere in their conversion? Does anybody have a guess? It's like a long, was it 100 years or 50 years or something later it was finally destroyed, but they had a long period in there. That's true. What's the greatest evidence that we have that they were sincere in turning to God? Jonah's anger. Jonah's anger? Very good thought. I hadn't thought of that. That's true. The prophet, he saw their genuineness and how God saved them, so he was angry. But keep going. Keep going forward in time. What's the greatest evidence we know of their sincerity? Jesus. What did Jesus say about it? Jesus said to the unbelieving cities he ministered to, 
that the Ninevites would rise up on the day of judgment and be a testimony against those in his day who have heard his good news and refused to believe. That's the greatest evidence we have right there of their sincere conversion. Because Jesus said to his unbelieving generation, the Ninevites are going to be a testimony against you and your stubborn unbelief. Again, as I said earlier when I was reading the text, this is the greatest miracle in the book of John. The greatest miracle is not Jonah being swallowed by a whale. Okay? And Jonah surviving that. Miracle? Yes. But not as great a miracle as this. Folks, you and I are certainly warned in the Bible of a coming day of judgment. It may not be in 40 days. It may be 40 years. It may be 400 years. But just as certainly as the message that Jonah preached to the Ninevites, we know there's coming a day of judgment. <coughs> and nobody can say that God hasn't warned us but the good news is what? By turning to the Lord Jesus, that judgment can be avoided. Because you see what happened at the cross. God's wrath against man's sin was propitiated, Paul says in Romans 3.25. Jesus took all of God's wrath against sin. And He died in your place and my place, taking the judgment against sin in His own body on the tree. And Isaiah 53, 11 tells us a prophecy of God viewing what was happening at the cross, that He would view that sacrifice and be satisfied. God's justice was perfectly satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And God's wrath and anger and judgment against sin was propitiated. And as Jesus said, what that means is that anybody who looks to the cross and believes, just as in the wilderness, the people in Moses' day looked to the serpent on the pole and were healed. Anybody who looks to Christ and His sacrifice and believes shall be what? Shall be saved. You don't have to suffer judgment. You don't have to die in your sin. That's the message we're called to go out and proclaim to people. And again, Paul says, the feet of those who go and proclaim that good news, what? 
beautiful. It's a beautiful message, isn't it? A wonderful message. You don't have to die in your sin. But you and I don't know. Nobody around us knows the time that we have left. Plus, somebody that we're talking to, like Paul talking to the authorities, and one of them said, I'll hear you again on this matter at a more convenient time. Guess what? God may not give you that time. God may not move on your heart in the same way He might be moving on your heart tonight. And that's why the Scripture says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. You don't know if you'll get another chance. James 4 says, life is but a vapor. For all we know, any of us in here tonight, might meet the Lord before we wake up in the morning. And so if I am talking to somebody tonight who's unsure of their salvation, get sure. Get ready. If you go home tonight talking to somebody who's lost and you're sharing the gospel with them, press home the fact that they don't know how much time they have left. So if you know you're secure in God's family, why not pray for somebody else that you know is not secure in God's family? And lovingly help them to understand that they are standing in a very dangerous place. Well, Next week, we will get into chapter 4. And Lord willing, we'll finish out the book of Jonah. Any questions about chapter 3? Any comments or questions? I just wonder if he, uh, at some point, gave his testimony about what happened to him. You do wonder if he shared his testimony, if that was part of his sermon. Yeah, Know that you hated someone, that God forced you to do it anyway. Uh, it might, it might get some people's attention. In in modern times, back in the 1800s, the guy who was swallowed by a whale off the coast of the Falkland Islands, when the whale spit him back up, that's one of the modern day cases I was telling you about. They said his skin looked raw and sunburned from the acid in the whale's stomach, and all the hair had been singed off his body in splotches, big splotches. He was a terrible sight to see. You wonder if Jonah had some of that look about him. Well, and then Jonah me. gave his testimony. At that particular time, I doubt they knew that a uh, whale was a mammal. Yeah. So, sure. They probably thought it was a giant fish yeah. back in that time. Sure. But, um, yep. Mm -hmm. All of Jonah's experiences were probably on the 6 o'clock news in Nineveh anyway. <laughs> 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 he knew he was before he ever got there. <laughs> you know? His reputation preceded him yeah. to the city. I want to give a little testimony here. My sister's ex-husband was on his deathbed 
testimony that a good principle that comes out of the book of Jonah. You know, is there anybody that you despise and wouldn't go to with the good news? I hope not. You know, that was one of the main purposes of the book of Jonah. To show Israel how they were to be a shining light to the Gentiles. They hated the Gentile nations. And they wanted God's light to only shine on them as a nation. And through the prophets, God was telling them to go to other people. Uh, God wanted other people in his family. And the Ninevites were despised. Jonah, Jonah didn't want to see him saved. Israel didn't want to see the Ninevites saved. And here was Israel rejecting the word of the Lord and here's the Ninevites that they viewed as ungodly and they were ungodly and evil and yet when confronted with God's good news the Ninevites repented and came to God and many in Israel wouldn't so there are there are people today as a Christian maybe you don't want to go to I don't like him, I don't like her, I don't like those people down there, whatever and we're called to get over that, break out of that, and go, go to people. Right? That's a principle we could use between the Democrats and the Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we want to call down fire from heaven. <laughs> That's not the way. <laughs> okay. Uh, Charlie? Would you <coughs> just get back to these 
names here we mentioned. Would you lead us in prayer as we close tonight? Father, I just come to you tonight to thank you for who you are. First of all, Lord, we'd just like to lift up our nation to you. In some of the Psalms I've been reading, Lord, it sounds almost just like what's going on within our own nation. <coughs> David wrote in the 36th Psalm, he said, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their heart. And Lord, they have no fear of you. They are so blinded, Lord, that, you know, they they can't even see their own wickedness. Uh, they're just crooked and deceitful. And, uh, Father, they, they, they just refuse to listen to wisdom or to good things. And, Father, it's almost like they lay awake at night just hatching, just, just trying to think of uh, simple plots their actions are never good, Lord, and they never attempt to turn from me. Lord, right now, I just pray a hedge around those folks in Washington, D.C. that's about to take charge of our nation. I pray, Father, that you just build a hedge about them. And I pray, Father, they'll hear from every direction the love of Jesus Christ. Father, it's evident that through the words in your scripture, you tell us we can discern, Father, those who are walking with you and those who are not. And tonight, Father, I just pray for their salvation. I pray that you would just grab a hold of their hearts. And I pray, Father, that you just shake until they fall down on their knees and confess that you are Lord and receive you as their Lord and Savior. Father, that is where our hope lies, is in Jesus Christ and not in man. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to lean on you. Help us to gain strength and courage to stand up for your word. That we would not be ashamed, we would not be afraid to approach those that we do not like or that we despise and tell them about Jesus. And Father, also tonight, I would just like to lift up those on our prayer list. I think mostly about Carol and Eli. Uh, both of them, Father. Carol's just come through some cancer surgeries and is healing and now they have found out that Eli, uh, the tumors. Father, I ask that through your mercy and your grace that you might touch Eli and heal him and restore him to good health. We ask, Father, to be with Joel Hyatt, Lord, as he recovers, uh, touch his body. Uh, we pray for his wife, too, Father, that you would just encourage her and lift her up at this time. We think about all those, Lord, that have 
contracted the COVID virus. We just ask the Lord that you give them the grace they need to go through each day. That we just pray especially that maybe their symptoms would only be light and not uh, grave. We pray, Father, and just give you honor and glory about the Lottie Moon offering. We just thank you, Father, for putting on the hearts of people the need for the loss in this world. That you place on our hearts the willingness to take out of our funds to give that someone might go and tell. Father, I believe with all that's going on in my heart that your return could be very close and very near. <coughs> I pray, Father, that we would just burn in our hearts for the lost and be willing to tell them that their only hope is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now I pray, Father, as we go from this place tonight, that you would watch over us and keep us safe. And we thank you, Father, for this church, that you would bless Pastor Scott, Pastor Kevin Seeger, Pastor Kevin Knight, and Pastor uh, Jonathan Turner, Father. I just pray that you just bless them and keep them safe. And let them <coughs> prosper. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. See you Sunday. If not before, I'll see some of you at 2 o'clock on Saturday.